A Comedy in Rubber by O. Henry. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. One may hope, in spite of the metaphorists, to avoid the breath of the deadly upas tree. One may, by great good fortune, succeed in blacking the eye of the basilisk. One might even dodge the attentions of Cerberus and Argus. But no man, alive or dead, can escape the gaze of the rubberer. New York is the Cauchook City. There are many, of course, who go their ways making money without turning to the right or the left. But there is a tribe abroad wonderfully composed, like the Martians, solely of eyes and means of locomotion. These devotees of curiosity swarm like flies in a moment in a struggling breathless circle about the scene of an unusual occurrence. If a workman opens a manhole, if a streetcar runs over a man from North Tarrytown, if a little boy drops an egg on his way home from the grocery, if a casual house or two drops into the subway, if a lady loses a nickel through a hole in the lisle thread, if the police drag a telephone and a racing chart forth from an Ibsen Society reading room, if Senator Depew or Mr. Chuck Connors walks out to take the air, if any of these incidents or accidents takes place, you will see the mad, irresistible rush of the rubber tribe to the spot. The importance of the event does not count. They gaze with equal interest and absorption at a chorus girl or at a man painting a liver pill sign. They will form as deep a cordon around a man with a club foot as they will around a balked automobile. They have the Fuhrer rubberendi. They are optical gluttons, feasting and fattening on the misfortunes of their fellow beings. They gloat and pour and glare and squint and stare with their fishy eyes, like goggle-eyed perch at the book baited with calamity. It would seem that Cupid would find these ocular vampires too cold game for his calorific shafts, but have we not yet to discover an immune even among the protozoa? Yes, beautiful romance descended upon two of this tribe, and love came into their hearts, as they crowded about the prostrate form of a man who had been run over by a brewery wagon. William Pry was the first on the spot. He was an expert at such gatherings. With an expression of intense happiness on his features, he stood over the victim of the accident, listening to his groans as if to the sweetest music. When the crowd of spectators had swelled to a closely packed circle, William saw a violent commotion in the crowd opposite him. Men were hurled aside like ninepins by the impact of some moving body that clove them like the rush of a tornado. With elbows, umbrella, hatpin, tongue, and fingernails doing their duty, Violet Seymour forced her way through the mob of onlookers to the first row. Strong men, who even had been able to secure a seat on the 5.30 Harlem Express staggered back like children as she bucked center. 
Two large lady spectators who had seen the Duke of Roxburgh married and had often blocked traffic on 23rd Street fell back into the second row with ripped shirtwaists when Violet had finished with them. William Pry loved her at first sight. The ambulance removed the unconscious agent of Cupid. William and Violet remained after the crowd had dispersed. They were true rubberers. People who leave the scene of an accident with the ambulance have not genuine caoutchouc in the cosmogony of their necks. The delicate, fine flavor of the affair is to be had only in the aftertaste, in gloating over the spot, in gazing fixedly at the houses opposite, in hovering there in a dream more exquisite than the opium-eater's ecstasy. William Pry and Violet Seymour were connoisseurs in casualties. They knew how to extract full enjoyment from every incident. Presently they looked at each other. Violet had a brown birthmark on her neck as large as a silver half-dollar. William fixed his eyes upon it. William Pry had inordinately bowed legs. Violet allowed her gaze to linger unswervingly upon them. Face to face they stood thus for moments, each staring at the other. Etiquette would not allow them to speak, but in the Cowchook City it is permitted to gaze without stint at the trees in the parks and at the physical blemishes of a fellow creature. At length, with a sigh, they parted. But Cupid had been the driver of the brewery wagon, and the wheel that broke a leg united two fond hearts. The next meeting of the hero and heroine was in front of a board fence near Broadway. The day had been a disappointing one. There had been no fights on the street. Children had kept from under the wheels of the streetcars. Cripples and fat men in negligee shirts were scarce. Nobody seemed to be inclined to slip on banana peels or fall down with heart disease. Even the sport from Kokomo, Indiana, who claims to be a cousin of ex-mayor Lowe and scatters nickels from a cab window had not put in his appearance. There was nothing to stare at, and William Pry had premonitions of ennui. But he saw a large crowd scrambling and pushing excitedly in front of a billboard. Sprinting for it, he knocked down an old woman and a child carrying a bottle of milk, and fought his way like a demon into the mass of spectators. Already in the inner line stood Violet Seymour, with one sleeve and two gold fillings gone, a corset steel puncture and a sprained wrist, but happy. She was looking at what there was to see. A man was painting upon the fence. Eat bricklets, they fill your face. Violet blushed when she saw William Pry. William jabbed a lady in the black silk raglan in the ribs, kicked a boy in the shin, bit an old gentleman on the left ear, and managed to crowd nearer to Violet. They stood for an hour looking at the man paint the letters. Then William's love could be repressed no longer. He touched her on the arm. Come with me, he said. I know where there is a boot black without an Adam's apple. She looked up at him shyly, yet with unmistakable love transfiguring her countenance. And you have saved it for me? she asked, 
trembling with the first dim ecstasy of a woman beloved. Together they hurry to the bootblack stand. An hour they spent there gazing at the malformed youth. A window cleaner fell from the fifth story to the sidewalk beside them. As the ambulance came clanging up, William pressed her hand joyously. Four ribs at least and a compound fracture, he whispered swiftly. You are not sorry that you met me, are you, dearest? Me? said Violet, returning the pressure. Sure not. I could stand all day rubbering with you. The climax of the romance occurred a few days later. Perhaps the reader will remember the intense excitement into which the city was thrown when Eliza Jane, a colored woman, was served with a subpoena. The rubber tribe encamped on the spot. With his own hands, William Pry placed a board upon two beer kegs in the street opposite Eliza Jane's residence. He and Violet sat there for three days and nights. Then it occurred to a detective to open the door and serve the subpoena. He sent for a kinetoscope and did so. Two souls with such congenial tastes could not long remain apart. As a policeman drove them away with his nightstick that evening, they plighted their troth. The seeds of love had been well sown, and had grown up, hardy and vigorous, into a, let us call it, a rubber plant. The wedding of William Pry and Violet Seymour was set for June 10. The big church in the middle of the block was banked high with flowers. The populous tribe of rubberers the world over is rampant over weddings, they are the pessimists of the pews, they are the guyers of the groom and the banterers of the bride. They come to laugh at your marriage, and should you escape from Hyman's Tower on the back of death's pale steed, they will come to the funeral and sit in the same pew and cry over your luck. Rubber will stretch. The church was lighted. A gross-grain carpet lay over the asphalt to the edge of the sidewalk, Bridesmaids were patting one another's sashes awry and speaking of the bride's freckles. Coachmen tied white ribbons on their whips and bewailed the space of time between drinks. The minister was musing over his possible fee, essaying conjecture whether it would suffice to purchase a new broadcloth suit for himself and a photograph of Laura Jane Libby for his wife. Yeah, Cupid was in the air. And outside the church, oh, my brothers, surged and heaved the rank and file of the tribe of rubberers. In two bodies they were, with the gross-grain carpet and cops with clubs between. They crowded like cattle. They fought. They pressed and surged and swayed and trampled one another to see a bit of a girl in a white veil acquire license to go through a man's pockets while he sleeps. But the hour for the wedding came and went, and the bride and bridegroom came not. And impatience gave way to alarm, and alarm brought about search, and they were not found. And then two big policemen took a hand and dragged out of the furious mob of onlookers a crushed and trampled thing, with a wedding ring in its vest pocket, and a shredded and hysterical woman beating her way to the carpet's edge, ragged, bruised, and obstreperous. William Pry and Violet Seymour, 
creatures of habit, had joined in the seething game of the spectators, unable to resist the overwhelming desire to gaze upon themselves, entering as bride and bridegroom the rose-decked church. Rubber will out. End of A Comedy in Rubber by O. Henry